Now, this week for us uh, is actually exciting too. We get to wrap up our study on the book of Zechariah that we've been doing all summer. And the book of Zechariah, I have found our study to be really interesting. There's so many interesting parts, especially all these prophecies about Jesus, about when he came. And it's interesting, I think, that the book of Zechariah is one of the books that Christians typically are less familiar with. They know less about it. They read it less. But for the Jews in Jesus' time, it was super important of a book. It was on the top of their mind, especially as they waited for the Messiah to come. So let's read today's verses. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. If you're using the Bibles in the hallway or the ones from the church building, if you took one of those, we're going to be on page 652. Uh, you can also find the verses on our app by going to summer services and verses. Start in verse 1. We're going to go through 9. It says this. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Okay, pause right there. So we see here a description of what we call the day of the Lord, right? This day when Jesus is coming back and he's going to come in judgment and strength and glory and he will judge the sinners and reestablish his kingdom here on earth and he will rule here on earth in a kingdom with Jerusalem as the centerpiece of that kingdom, as his throne. And we read about that here and the rest of the chapter goes on to keep describing that. The Jews in Jesus' day, even the disciples, including them, expected the Messiah to be a great military leader. They expected the Messiah to come and lead the Jews into battle against whatever oppressive regime was over them in that day and restore Israel to its former glory days. And Zechariah 14, among other places in the Old Testament, is a major part of that expectation, of the expectation of a militaristic Messiah. That's not from nowhere. It's from places like Zechariah 14. Now, we, of course, have the New Testament. We've seen what Christ has done, and we understand now clearly the prophecies about Jesus having to die and rise again as the Messiah. But for the disciples, that was the weird part. 
they got this part about the military Messiah, about the war and the violent part of it. They understood that. But the dying, the rising of the death, that was confusing to them. We see an example of that really clearly in Matthew 16, which says this. Jesus was just saying, who do you say I am? They say, you are the Messiah. He says, that's right. And this is what he says after that. He says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And you can see right there, they didn't get the part where he had to die and rise from the dead. They had certain expectations of the Messiah, don't we all? What's he going to save them from? They expected the Romans, who were genuinely, genuinely terrible people to live under in many regards. And so they expected the Messiah to save them from that. But Jesus was reorienting their understanding of who God is and what they need saving from and how he's going to save them through his death and resurrection. And from that point on, Jesus goes on to fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy right in front of the many that we see prophesied about here in the book of Zechariah. They saw him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's from Zechariah 9, prophesied. They saw him sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's prophesied Zechariah 11. They saw him pierced for their sins on the cross. That's from Zechariah 12. They saw him forsaken as the sheep scattered when they struck the shepherd. That's from Zechariah 13. Those are just some of the Old Testament prophecies that they saw fulfilled in Christ. The disciples saw all of that. Okay? So now turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles from the church, that's on page 743. So I want you to see something here in Acts chapter 1. Here in Acts chapter 1, we get to one of the very last interactions that Jesus has with the disciples, where they follow Jesus out of the city of Jerusalem. And they're following the risen Christ. He's already risen from the dead up onto the Mount of Olives. Remember, the Mount of Olives is the very place it said he would stand in Zechariah 14, verse 4, where he would stand after all those other things happened, all those other prophecies were fulfilled. And they were looking down on the city of Jerusalem, because you can see it there from the Mount of Olives. It's right on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. You go look down and see the whole city, and it would make total sense for their minds to go to Zechariah 14. It's the next chapter. It's the next prophecy to be fulfilled. And so, it's not very surprising that it says this in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. The disciples say, or says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they thought right there in Acts chapter 1, okay, Jesus is this that day. You know, the day of the Lord. The thing we read about in Zechariah 14, is this, is this about to happen? You know, of course, we didn't get the whole dying and rising part, but we, we get that next. But is this the grand finale where, where you lead us in battle against these people and restore your kingdom, what we've been waiting for? You know, they are on the Mount of Olives, just like it says in Zechariah 14. They're looking down on Jerusalem, occupied by the Romans, the city that just tried to kill the Messiah, but he even conquered death. And they had so much expectation built into that moment right there. 
So much promise built into that spot right there, looking down onto so much pain and so much history down in that city down there. And they saw this man walk on water. And they saw the sun go dark for three hours while he was on the cross. And they saw him calm storms with just a word. And now they've seen him raised from the dead. They know who he is. They know that Zechariah is about him. So is it so weird for them to wonder if the mountain they're standing on in Acts chapter 1 is about to split in two, literally just shake under their feet and rip in half? Is it so weird for them to think, well, is the sun going to go dark again for a while, but there be no darkness? Is it so weird for them to think looking down on the city of Jerusalem is a spring of living water about to pour out of the ground and go, nor- go one way and go the other way right in front of our eyes? Is that so weird? Because to us, that sounds weird. Sounds really far-fetched, kind of hard to understand and know what it's talking about. But for them, it's probably just another day. This is what they had been experiencing the whole time. In fact, Jesus doesn't tell them their expectations of Zechariah 14 are wrong. He doesn't tell them their expectations of God coming in judgment and in battle are wrong. Look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 1. Instead, he just says, it's not the right time. Verse 7 says this. He says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So it's just not the right time. This prophecy, Zechariah 14, still has not been fulfilled. We are still waiting for it to be fulfilled. That's where we find ourselves today, in this room. We are living between Zechariah 13 and Zechariah 14. We're living between the first coming and the second coming. We're living between fulfilled prophecy and prophecy that we're still waiting on the timing of the Lord to get right and for him to fulfill. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus coming back. And all of them give this incredible picture of him just coming in majesty and glory and in judgment and in power and saving his people and restoring his kingdom in fullness and in justice and in love. And it's just an incredible picture. Jesus is coming back. You think it must have been awesome back then? Well, guess what? There's a part two. He's coming back. That's an amazing thing for us to look forward to as the church and to to be excited about and to glorify him because of that truth. But I read all these passages and study the second coming. Maybe you do the same and it's, it's very interesting. And I think, okay, that's great. He's coming back. What do I do with that? Right? What am I supposed to do with that? It's very interesting to know, like, What's going to happen one day? It might be interesting, but why is it important for me to know now? Why did God think it was important for him to reveal as Scripture for me now? What does it have to do with me as a Christian? I don't think God wastes his breath on mere theological information. It's got to be more than that. The Word of God is not just meant to be pondered and make cool charts and debate about exactly the details of what are going to happen and study it. That's not the main purpose of the Word of God. The Word of God is alive and active. So I have to ask, how do these prophecies about the second coming of Christ and Zechariah 14, how does this passage penetrate my soul and my spirit as Scripture says God's Word does? It penetrates you. 
how does Zechariah 14 judge the thoughts and attitudes of my heart, as Scripture says God's Word does? Is it just theological information to be charted, or is it piercing my soul? When it comes to prophecy about the second coming, the penetration it does into us is through opening our eyes. That's the primary way, and it does it in two ways. It opens our eyes in two ways. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 again, and we'll see. I think that the instructions here in Acts 1 that Jesus gives to his disciples are super helpful in seeing how we should live life in light of the prophecies of his second coming and the end times and all that stuff. What are we supposed to do with that? Are we supposed to get weird and wear foil hats and look at Mayan calendars and stuff like that? No. Let's see what Jesus tells his disciples to do. We'll start in verse 6 again, and we'll go all the way through 8. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says that the primary response we should have to our knowledge of the second coming, that he is coming back, the way it opens our eyes and penetrates our souls, is the knowledge that we are called to be his witnesses. That's how we respond, to be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, the disciples ask Jesus, they're on the Mount of Olives, is Zechariah 14 about to happen? He says, no, not yet, but go with the power of the Holy Spirit and tell people about me. Tell people what you saw. And then in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes, and they are empowered, and then they go start to share what they saw, what they know of his power and who he is, and many people are saved. And the rest of the book of Acts is all about that. That's what it's about. It's about the followers of Christ being his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit as they wait for him to come back and fulfill Zechariah 14. That is what the book of Acts is about. That is what the purpose of the church is. That is why one of our core values at Renovation Church that guides everything we do is that we will not rest until every person in our city has heard the gospel. It's on the wall at the building. When we get back there next month, they might have it up again. I don't know yet, but it's on the wall there. That we will not rest until everyone in our city has heard the gospel. Why? Because that's the last thing he told us to do before he ascended. And he is coming back. Amen. That is why we have the Holy Spirit, because he's coming back. That is why we pray with urgency for our family members and our friends and our neighbors that don't know Christ because he is coming back. That is why we explain the gospel and invite people to respond every week here because he is coming back. That is why we send and support long-term missionaries like the Pepins to the ends of the earth because he's coming back and he's given us a task to do. He gave us very clear instructions to go and be his witnesses. And I believe that some of you here in this room need to seriously consider and pray about going into missions full-time. I think that 
Many of you here are probably called to that, possibly. You know, we are all called to this mission. Every single one of us are a part of this. And God may be calling some of you to be those frontline workers. In fact, it's quite odd, statistically, for a group of Christians our size, Renovation Church, to have not sent out more missionaries at our size. There's a backlog of people, and they're sitting right here. It's you guys. I think maybe part of the reason for that is that maybe you do feel that call. I I genuinely believe God is calling people in our church to the field, but maybe you just don't know what to do with that. You know, you don't know the first steps, or you don't know how to discern that. Is really what he's calling me to? I don't know for sure. You don't know what to do. Or maybe you, you do have that call clearly, and you are fighting it. And no one's calling you out on that and saying, stop fighting that. Well, here I am on stage calling you out. Stop fighting the call to the mission field. They used to do two altar calls back in the day. One for salvation, another one for missionaries to go forth because that is what our purpose is as a church, to go be his witnesses. Maybe you're just scared to follow Jesus into the unknown. But into the unknown is the only place we can ever follow Jesus. The future is totally unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. The only thing we know is that Jesus is coming back. That's the only thing we can count on. He is coming back, and we have a job to do. So if you are feeling that call to missions, and you're, you think you are, you're trying to figure that out, to discern that, to missions or ministry in, in general maybe, you're just curious, please reach out. Part of my role as the adult ministries pastor is to oversee all of our missions work. So email me, find me in the hallway, and just talk to me, and we'll find uh, a way to connect and figure out the next steps of discerning if that's what God has called you to do and how to follow that faithfully uh, onto the mission field. You know, and that, that offer uh, is open to anyone, whether you're a young person, a teenager even, trying to figure out how can I arrange my future life going into adulthood in a way that honors God as the primary focus of my whole life. How can I do that? How can I live a life that honors the Lord? It's open to all you people in the middle of your lives with careers and skills and kids and families. That's for you too. The the mission field needs those careers and those skills and those families. Take them with you. Go serve together. Put that to work for the Lord around the world. And it's also open to you people that are retired and older. Most, uh, many missionaries are retired people. They get to that chapter in life and they say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of this? I was talking to a woman after one of my last Renovation U classes this summer, and she came up to me and she said, you know, the average life expectancy for a woman in America is about 80 years, and I'm about 60, so that means I've got about 20 years left to serve him. What am I going to do with those 20 years? You know, seeing where you are going and seeing what's coming down the road, what is coming, gives you such perspective on how you should invest your time right now. And so I want to encourage our church to start praying for missionaries to be sent out from our church, to go onto the field. And I, I want our church to be asking if that's you, for him to make it clear that that's what he has made you for, that he is calling you. He's saying, I need workers. I'm sending you. And you say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. And that you faithfully respond to that because he is coming back. And we have been given a task to do. 
You know, the worst thing that the disciples could have done in Acts chapter 1, they saw Jesus ascend after he told them to do this. He rose up to heaven, and they stood there staring at the sky. And so two angels came, it said, and said, why are you staring at the sky? He's coming back in the same way he went. Now get to work. The worst thing they could have done is just to sit there and watch and wait for Jesus to come back. And my fear as a pastor is that our church becomes a place where people come, hear the gospel, and sit and wait for him to come back in disobedience. This is where that happens. That happens in churches. That they come, they sit, they wait in disobedience. That is not why we have a church. That's not why I work at this church. Not to spur on disobedience in the seats, but to stir up missionaries to send out. Each of you, each of us, is called to that mission of Christ as literally the most important thing in the history of the world. When Jesus told the disciples to be witnesses, did they say, you know, I'm sorry, Jesus. It's just not a good time for me right now. Maybe next time. No. Did he say, you know, Jesus, I've got a lot on my plate right now. I'm not really sure I can commit to that right now fully the way I really want to do to commit to that. I think deserves it. So maybe next time. No, they don't say that. He says, I have called you. I am coming back as it's prophesied in Zechariah 14. Have you read that part? Do you know what's coming? That's what you need to have in mind. Now go back down into Jerusalem and tell them what you saw. Be my witnesses. And they went right back down into that city that wanted to kill all of them. And they arranged their whole lives to fulfill that mission as the primary purpose of their whole existence. And we are on that same mission. We are a part of that same group. The mission of Christ is the most important thing that there is. Above everything else, if you call yourself a Christ follower, every single day you should wake up and you say, Jesus, I am a dead person to myself. I died and was buried with you in baptism, and now my life is yours. I rose to new life in you. What do you want me to do today? And then just do that every day. Even if it causes you to live risky and to find discomfort and sometimes live in ways that don't make sense because of how closely you follow Christ. You know, the world values everything else more than Christ. So when you put Christ above everything else, the world thinks you are nuts, but they will see how valuable Christ is. That's the way we need to live in a way that looks nuts to the world, just crazy because of how high we value Christ in our lives, because of the way we make decisions based on the mission in our lives. Now, that life, though, of following that closely requires you to pick up your cross every single day. Crosses are heavy. Crosses give you splinters. It's not easy. You have to give up what you want all the time not just some of the time, all the time. You are dead to yourself. You live in him alone. So pick up your cross 
and give up what you want. We're supposed to be like the disciples and go arrange our entire lives to fulfill the mission of Christ as the primary purpose of our existence. Every time you make a choice, big or small, you need to ask yourself, will this help me arrange my life in such a way to be a better witness of Christ or will it get in the way? Will it make me more like the world? Will it make, make it harder for people to know who he is and for me to tell him what I've seen in Christ, what I have witnessed? That's how we need to make decisions, big or small. This car I'm getting, will it help me be a better disciple? Will it be, help me be a better witness? This house I'm buying or not buying, is that because it will help me witness this job I'm getting, this person I'm dating? Will they help me be a better witness or not? Or will they get in the way of the primary purpose of my existence? Because he is coming back. He is coming back. And that should give some perspective on what you are living for now. Do not live for the wrong things. The things the world loves and values higher than Christ. Don't live for those things. Which brings me to the second way. That was only the first way. The second way that... Prophecies about the second coming should open our eyes. And that is that it should cause us to take the warnings of judgment seriously. You know, prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament too was often for people that were living in sin, people that did not worship the Lord. And it was to call them to repentance and to warn them of the coming judgment. It was mostly for them many times. And if you look at Zechariah 14, it's no different. So let's turn back over to Zechariah 14. That's on page 652 if you're using the Bibles uh, from the hallway. And we're going to read a little bit more and see what is coming to those that do not run to Christ for safety. We're going to start in verse 12. And we'll read all the way down to 19. It says... This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules and camels and donkeys and all the animals in the camp. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptians do not go up to take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So pause right there. Okay. Doesn't sound awesome, right? Sounds pretty bad. And I think that many times people read prophecies like this. They read scriptures like this. And naturally they think, wow, God is such a bully. That's, that's pretty messed up. Love me, worship me, or I will kill you. I will starve you out, you and your people. That doesn't sound awesome. And if that's you, 
If you think that makes God a bully, an egotistical, maniacal, really bad person, let me explain to you why that thinking is wrong. You see, if this was a human, if this was just a regular person like you or me or anyone demanding or even enforcing obedience and reverence and worship, yeah, that would be very wrong of them. And you would be totally in the right, even even like ethically required to call that person a bully, an abuser, an evil person, that they are doing something wrong. But the reason you would call them evil and what they are doing is evil is because in demanding worship, they would be doing what only God can rightfully and justly do. He can do that. He should do that. It's part of his nature. It's part of his good role in his relationship with us to do that, to call us to obedience. It is an act of mercy for him to call you to obedience. It's part of who he is to us. But we're not talking about a person here. If they did it, it would be evil. We're not talking about a person. We're talking about a perfect, all-knowing judge and an all-powerful creator whom you have sinned against. And for him to call you to obedience, to give you an opportunity for that, is an act of mercy. He could have rightfully just condemned you, and he still may. But instead here, he warns you. He's not hiding his hand at all. He's showing it with neon lights saying, look what's coming down the road for the way you're going. Watch out. Open your eyes. Not because he wants to scare us into faith or something like that. Scripture says that God finds no joy in the death of the wicked. It says in 1 Timothy 2 that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants that. So he gives us a warning. And that truth is that he wants us to know is that Jesus is God and that we have sinned against him. And so he came to earth as a human He lived a perfect life, and then he was killed on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, for our sins together. And he didn't have to do any of that. He just loved us enough to do it, to make a way for sinners to come to him, for prideful people to be saved today and on that day in Zechariah 14. And then he could have, that time on the Mount of Olives in in Acts 1, when they said, is today the day? He could have said yes, and that would have been that. But instead, he's been patient, waiting for as many people that will come to him to come before Zechariah 14, that day comes. And he has made sure that you are here to hear about this, to hear that the day of the Lord is coming. And he sent people to tell you, to make sure you hear about this good news, that there is a way to be saved, to be saved from that judgment. If you just believe in him, give him your life, you will be saved today and on that day. That is an act of mercy and love for you, to call you to obedience to that. He doesn't want you just to hear that good news. He wants you to respond to it. Look at our passage. Did you see there in Zechariah 14, did you notice the festival of tabernacles? You see that in there? It's mentioned three times. Anytime something's mentioned three times, it's important. So you should look it up. The festival of tabernacles is a festival remembering God's provision for people wandering in the desert through the wilderness 
It was a festival where they would gather together and they would rest and they would have joy and peace and praise to the Lord and thanksgiving. That's what we're made to do. That's our nature. Those are the good things that we do as humans in that relationship with him. And so if you refuse, though, to come to that source of life, to that provider, as you're wandering in the desert, you refuse to come to that stream of living water that he provides, is it any wonder that you become dry, that you rot away where you're standing? Some of you feel that rot in your life, like you are rotting away because you are on the wrong path. You feel like you have no purpose in life. Tomorrow's another day. Who cares? You are rotting away with no purpose, and you feel it, and that's because you're on the wrong path. It's not a good way to live. Look at what's coming. If you don't come to the king, the only one who can forgive your sins, who can give you actual rest, is it any wonder that you are stuck wandering in this life? Instead, change the path you are on. Hear the mercy of God in the warning of Zechariah chapter 14. Hear that he has love for you and making sure you have, uh, you have a chance to hear about what is coming. That you have a chance to hear that there's a way to be saved. And then seriously consider the path that you are on. And I want to give us all a chance to seriously consider that. Because what is coming down the road is not good if you are not part of the king's people. If you don't belong to him, go on WebMD and look up pictures of rotting tongues in people's mouths, of rotting eyeballs. Have you ever Googled those kinds of things? It's not good. And there's a way to be saved from that future. So let me have everyone just bow your head and close your eyes in prayer for the people around you. To give them a private moment for you to consider your path that you are on, to examine yourself to ask yourself if you are just sitting here watching in disobedience or if you have obediently gotten on your knees and come to the king and saying, I am yours, I am dead to myself, my life is yours, I give it all to you. Or am I still on the path to destruction? When Zechariah 14 happens, when he comes back and he is coming back, what will my part in that story be? Will I rot where I stand or will I flee to safety through the valley that he makes? And if you know you are headed to destruction, even if you have fought against God, if you have thought faith was stupid or weak or a waste of time and unnecessary, listen to where that will lead you and turn your life over to the king today, right now. Change your path. Listen to his call. And if that's you, if you want to do that today, I want you to just stand up right now where you are as a way to say, I take this seriously and I believe that you have saved me. Zechariah 14 is a true prophecy. He is coming back. Listen to his warning. Listen to the love that he has in his call to you. Okay, I don't see anyone here. Go ahead and open your eyes. What I appreciate on days when we get to really present the gospel to the church and show the warnings that he has given us in Scripture and then ask people to respond to that, and nobody does, 
What I really appreciate about that is that it can be a reminder to the church of our mission, that the people in here have heard this, and most of us are saved already, and that our real mission is out there on the mission field, okay? So what I want to do to close our service is to pray together. In Scripture, it says that the harvest is plentiful out there, but the workers are few. And so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. So let's pray that God would raise up missionaries in our church and that those missionaries would faithfully respond to that call. Father, we praise your name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have shown us the truth of who we are and where we are headed without you. I pray that you would burn Zechariah 14 into our minds and pierce our hearts and souls. Test our hearts with your word, Lord. We pray that you would raise up missionaries in our congregation to send out and that we as a whole body would be on that mission together. We pray that we would faithfully always keep what you have told us to do at the forefront of our minds, that you would be the primary purpose of our whole lives and everything we do. Every decision we make would be focused on obedience to your call, Lord. We praise you and we lift you high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.